Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And as I record this episode, it's still pretty early in 2019. It's February 2019. And the social networking site Facebook has been in the news frequently for several reasons over the last many months, mostly to the company's consternation. These have not been positive news stories for the company. Mark Zuckerberg himself said that perhaps the social networking industry in particular might require regulation. And I've seen a few calls from lots of different people that Facebook should either divest itself of some of its properties, like Instagram, or else maybe the government should come in and do it for them and bust it up, kind of like busting up the old uh, telephone monopolies back in the day before they kind of reformed. That's a different story. Facebook is one of a few enormous companies, uh, Amazon and Google would be two others, that has so much access to our personal information that it's always going to be a potential threat. And it could be a potential threat either through internal company decisions, things that Facebook itself does, or there's the possibility of external interference such as during the 2016 presidential election in the United States. It's a powerful tool that could be used positively or negatively. Facebook was largely able to grow to this size by outperforming numerous other social networking sites, all of which aim to make a business out of connecting people online. So in this episode, I want to talk about a few of the social networking sites that attempted to carve out a place online. Some of them even predated Facebook. But this is just a small selection I'm going to give you in this episode because there have been lots of different attempts to do this, and some of them are really localized to specific countries or to specific interests, so I couldn't cover them all. Uh, and some of them didn't even make it past the early development stages. Also, I do not plan to cover MySpace in any sort of detail because I've done an entire episode, actually multiple episodes, dedicated to MySpace. And technically, it's still around, though it's not anything like what it was originally. So some people would argue that MySpace itself is no longer a thing, at least not as it was originally intended. So anyway, here's a selection of social networking sites that ultimately failed and a little bit about each of them. And I figure it might be a, a good idea to start off with a, a couple of examples from truly huge companies because that helps illustrate how hard it can be to establish a social networking service that people actually want to use. So if Google and Apple can't do it, these huge companies that have billions of dollars of support behind them, it's got to be hard to do, right? So we're going to start off with Google+. Plus. Keeping in mind that Google will pop up again and again in this episode because of their involvement in trying to establish social networks. But Google Plus is a pretty recent one and one that uh, has some more news coming up very shortly. And, you know, Google Plus tried a, lo a lot. It tried hard for many years to become a true social network destination. But as of April 2019, it's going to be shut down for good. And honestly, it probably could have closed up shop a few years ago, and the world in general wouldn't have noticed. Instead, it took a massive data breach, or at least the possibility of one, for Google to close the door on Google+. So let me 
talk a little bit about it. So Google Plus wasn't the internet uh, company's first foray into social networking, as I had mentioned. There had also been Google Buzz, which was a tool that was integrated directly into Gmail, but was discontinued when the company prepared to launch Google Plus. There was also Google Friend Connect, which lasted from 2008 to 2012 for all non-blogger sites, as in Google blogger sites. Even the blogger sites had to say goodbye to it in 2016. Google Plus was supposed to take the best ideas from both of those earlier efforts and add more innovation when it would launch in 2011. And there's some other social networks that relate back to Google that we'll talk about later in this episode. So Google Plus would let you organize the people in your online social circle into circles. That's what it called the different groups. You had uh, circles and you could drag a person's picture into circles to sort them. So you could name circles whatever you wanted, and you could create lots of them in order to sort people out into specific groups. So you could create circles like friends, family, coworkers, or you could create people who really like that one joke I tell. In my case, I had a circle just for people that worked with me at the Georgia Renaissance Festival because there were a few of them on Google Plus back in the day. Then, when you posted on the social networking platform, you could choose which circles could see your post. Yeah, you might want the whole world to be able to view it, in which case you would just make it public. But let's say that you wanted to address one group and leave out everybody else. Like, maybe you're asking your friends about recommendations for a job search, in which case you probably don't want your coworkers to see that post. Then you would select your friends, you would leave out your coworkers, and that would be that. You know, you would just post it and the only people who would see it were the ones that you had authorized to see it. That was the basic idea. And the platform had all the features that you would expect to find on social networks. You could post updates, you could share links, you could share photos, you could make new friends, you could join groups. There was a lot of integration with Google's other services like YouTube. But apart from the initial excitement when the platform first opened, fueled in large part by the fact that when it was first opened, Google held an invitation-only closed beta, so the only way you could get an account was if you got an invite, it gave the platform some exclusivity which made people want to be part of it more. Now, I know because I was part of that first group, I was uh, invited to participate, and it was kind of fun because it was still a very small group of people, generally speaking, who were online, and they were almost all business leaders or tech journalists. So I got the chance to catch up with friends of mine who also got in on that closed beta. Once it opened up and after it had that initial rush of everyone adding in their accounts, it had trouble catching on. And it wasn't just the design that didn't really grab people's interests. It was some of the policies that Google had put into place. So this was around the same time that Google had decided to make a single login for all its services, including stuff like YouTube. And they wanted to link each account to the account owner's real name. So they wanted to make sure that the name of the account was the same as the person who created that account. Never mind if you have an online following that knows you by a stage name or a brand. The intent was to create accountability. So I would say the intentions were honorable. Google figured people would behave better if their actions online could be traced back to their real identities. If you can't hide behind anonymity, you're less likely to be a jerk face online. That was the logic. 
But there was an intense backlash from the online community due to this policy. And there were legitimate objections to it. It wasn't just people saying, I don't want to have my name on the internet. Some were worried that they could be targeted if their identities were revealed. Maybe they use online social networks as a way of expressing opinions about an oppressive government. You know, they might not live in a place where such things are are tolerated uh, and might even be actively punished. They don't want to have their identity traced directly back to them, but they still want to be able to share those views with the wider world. Uh, Some people had undergone extremely personal changes, like maybe there was someone who had had a sex change operation and literally they were no longer the person they used to be. They have transformed into a new identity. They did not want their online presence to reflect someone who no longer existed. Google eventually backed off this policy, but the platform never really recovered from that. In fact, There was a lot of animosity, not just on Google+, but particularly on YouTube, related to all of this. Now, on first glance, the platform seemed to be doing fairly well. If you were just looking at numbers and you weren't looking too hard, it looked like things were going pretty smoothly, or at least there was an encouraging trend. Because in 2016, there were around 395 million registered accounts that were listed as active. Now, that's not like the billion of accounts that Facebook was boasting, but still, it's almost half a billion. You're getting close to half a billion. That's a respectable population, except 91% of those accounts had nothing in them. They were empty. They, They had someone who had created them, but they weren't posting anything. The nail in the coffin would be that data breach I had mentioned, or really it was more of a vulnerability. The design of Google+, would potentially allow a third-party app developer to get far more data access than was intended. So let's say that you have a Google Plus account and you want to enable an app that will work on top of Google Plus. You could give that app access to your information on your profile. Maybe it's just the public information. And you could also give access to the public profile information of your of your friends. So it's not anything that was listed privately. It would just be the same sort of stuff you would see on your friend's uh, profile if you were a total stranger and you just navigated to that person's profile. So anything they chose that was public, this app could see. A security probe, however, discovered that the app developers could also get access to information stored in fields that were not tagged as public. So... That meant that this vulnerability would allow a third-party developer to see all sorts of information someone had voluntarily put into their profile but had not chosen to reveal publicly. That could include stuff like real names, email addresses, uh, occupations. These are mostly optional fields, not ones that you had to fill out. But even if you had filled them out and told Google Plus that you wanted them to be private unless you sorted someone into a friend bucket, for example, or circle, I should say, that these apps could get access to that information. So Google posted a message that said it had independently discovered this vulnerability. It wasn't brought to their attention from a breach, but rather while investigating Google+, they discovered it. And according to Google, according to their their experience, they didn't see any evidence the developer had ever discovered or exploited it. At least that's what they said. 
So the company patched the vulnerability in March 2018, but the message was clear. Google Plus was actually more trouble than it was worth to keep around. And so there will be no more Google Plus after April 2019. It just doesn't make sense to keep uh, expending energy and money and resources on a product that very few people are using. But what about Apple? I mentioned Apple as well as one of the other big companies that attempted to create a social network and failed. Well, they tried to integrate a social network-like feature into the juggernaut program iTunes. So Apple launched iTunes way back in 2001. They announced it at the Macworld Expo that year and revealed to the world an enormous digital music online storefront, which would end up changing the way people bought music and, and would even change the way that music would be recorded. Uh, the album experience became less important and the single experience became way more important. And then it would go on to support the creation of a burgeoning art form called the podcast. But nine years later, in 2010, upon the release of iTunes version 10, Apple would introduce Ping. Ping was a music-centric social networking platform. So with your profile on iTunes, you could follow other users or music artists. You could choose bands or, or uh, musicians to follow, and you could search out their concert listings. You could also use Ping to indicate that you are attending one of those concerts, you know, kind of be one of those super cool people, almost a, almost a social status sort of thing. Like, yeah, I'm going to be at the uh, concert in Brooklyn of this band that four people know about, but don't worry, you'll all know about it in two years. Or you could create or peruse song lists or album charts. You could see the photos and the videos that your favorite musicians were sharing. And ideally, it would allow for easier music discovery, something that is pretty tricky. But Ping did not get much traction. And one possible reason for that was that upon launch, there was no way to integrate Ping's features into Facebook profiles. According to The Verge, that wasn't necessarily... Apple's choice. The Verge reported that there were rumors at the very least that Apple had intended to integrate Facebook support in Ping, but they had to pull it out at the last minute for unsaid reasons. I have no idea what the reasoning was. Now, despite an early rush of users making profiles, just like with Google+, Ping didn't really catch on. Apple chose to shut down the service just two years later in 2012. Both Google Plus and Ping were latecomers to the social networking party, though. After the break, I'll talk about a site that actually debuted before Facebook and MySpace. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Back in 2002, three developers named Peter Chen, Jonathan Abrams, and Dave Lee wanted to create an online tool that would make it easy for people to connect with one another on the internet. You would be able to link up with folks you already knew, and you would be able to make new friends over this great communications tool. No longer would your real-world environment limit who you could befriend. So these three got together, and they began to develop this tool, one of the earlier social networking sites. Sometimes people refer to it as the first real social network, or at least the first real one to enjoy mainstream success. It was called Friendster. But I want to be clear, this was 2002. There were sites that I would call social network sites that predated Friendster. 
I do agree that Friendster was the first one to be really successful. So they were able to launch a prototype of this Friendster site in the spring of 2002. And within a few months, they had more than 3 million users, which is not bad when you remember that this was a pretty early idea still. Even though there had been a couple of other attempts at creating social networks, that was at a time when there were very few people online at all. So this is still a new concept for a lot of people. So you had to explain to people what this was all about in the first place before you could even get them to decide whether or not they wanted to join. And Friendster tried to turn everyone into Kevin Bacon. And by that, I mean Friendster would show you how you were connected to strangers through a network of mutual friends. So you might discover that someone you have never met, someone you do not know, is actually very good friends with a couple of people you do know. And maybe those people you know are actually in totally different social circles. Like, otherwise you wouldn't realize that these two people had anything in common. Uh, the example I would give is, say, let's say that I found out that someone I knew from my work at the Georgia Renaissance Festival was friends with someone uh, that was also friends with a coworker, And I would have thought, well, I didn't expect those two worlds to cross because I've never seen, seen them interact. But now here's this third person or fourth person, really, because I'm counting myself in here too, this fourth person who is a connection both to my coworkers and to the folks that I work with at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. Maybe I would like to be friends with that person too, because chances are I share more than a few common interests with them. That was the theory. It was a very compelling concept, this idea that you could meet people that you would very much be friends with, you just hadn't had the opportunity yet, you hadn't met them yet, and this would be a way to meet them. And lest I be remiss, I have to mention this was not a new idea, even for online social networks. Back in the mid-90s, there was a sort of proto-social network site called Six Degrees, and it was built on that very premise. However, it appeared online at that time I was talking about when there weren't that many people on the World Wide Web. Very few people were aware of what the web was or had any experience with it. So there weren't a whole lot of people to sign up for it, and it eventually kind of faded away. Not many people remember it. However, I will say the site did return years later. And if you have an account, if you, if you had made an account for six degrees back in the mid-90s, then you could still log in to that old account. Um, so it does technically exist, but there's fewer than like a quarter million people on there these days. In 2003, the developers of uh, Friendster were able to secure $12 million in funding from an investment firm. But while that was a really good shot in the arm, the site was finding it difficult to handle its rapidly expanding popularity. There were more people joining the site than they could accommodate. And so they were always trying to play catch up, trying to build out enough capacity to handle the people who were, wanted to use the service. There were glitches and server issues. The site would load slowly and users would become frustrated. It had grown too quickly for the company to manage. MySpace, which launched in August 2003, also began to get popular and siphon away users. And Friendster never really recovered from that. The site continued on for a few more years. While its popularity declined in the States, it did remain strong in Asia, so it wasn't like it was going obsolete everywhere. But then Facebook emerged and started to gain in popularity, and Friendster would continue its decline in the United States. 
In 2009, the company launched a redesign attempting to position itself as the cool social network. In fact, it actually tried to leverage the fact that more people were on MySpace and Facebook. It was essentially saying, why do you want to be where everybody else is? Why do you want to be mainstream, man? It's a very hipster kind of mentality. Like, let's let's go someplace that not everyone's already at. Later in 2009, a company called MOL Global acquired Friendster for around $40 million, although when you subtract all the debts and everything, it was closer to $26 million. So tr- most, most sites list the actual purchase price at $26.4 million. Um, that's deducting stuff like Friendster's secured debt or payouts to Friendster executives. This wasn't great news for the company in 2009 because – Way back in 2003, Google had offered to acquire the company for around $30 million before all that debt was accrued and before all those executive payments would be necessary. So this was actually a step down six years later. Friendster continued to operate as designed for a short while, but MOL would go back to the drawing board and relaunch Friendster as a gaming social networking site. But even that effort failed And in June 2015, the site shut down and has remained that way ever since. Now, jumping back to Google for a second, I want to talk about Orkut, another early social networking site. Orkut would debut after Friendster and MySpace. It was one of the famed 20% projects. So over at Google back in the day, don't know if this is still the case, but uh, Google, part of its reputation was that it had a common practice to allow employees to dedicate up to 20% of their work time to personal projects as long as those personal projects were aligned with Google's goals. So whatever your normal job was nine to five at Google, you would do that for 80% of your time. And then for 20% of your time, you could work on something else. Sometimes those projects would grow into something more than that. They might evolve into a feature or even a fully-fledged product at Google. And one of those was Orkut, which was named after its creator, a Turkish developer named Orkut Buyakoktan. Orkut joined Google, Orkut the man, joined Google after graduating from Stanford. He built a social network and called it Eden, but then discovered they wouldn't be able to secure the domain Eden.com, so They needed to go back to the drawing board for the name. And ultimately, he was told that he should really name it after himself and call it Orkut. Orkut in Turkish means happy city, so it seemed like a good fit. Orkut would become a social networking site and became popular pretty quickly. It actually overtook Friendster in popularity. And by 2006, it was the second most popular social network on the internet. Number one at that time was MySpace. And the majority of Orkut's users were in Brazil. 70% of the users of Orkut were in Brazil. And in fact, the site would maintain a dominant position in India and Brazil for several years, but would eventually lose ground to Facebook to all other domains in the United States, in India. And in 2012, they finally lost to Facebook in Brazil. Facebook would displace it and never look back. Google would continue to support Orkut.com until 2014. Orkut the man by then had already left the Orkut team. In fact, he had left the Orkut team in 2008. 
and became a product manager at Google, but then he left Google entirely in 2014, the same year that the social networking site went offline. He would go on to found another social network called Hello, which still exists. It initially launched in Brazil, and it expanded from there. So that one's still around. You could join Hello today if you wanted to. Now, there have been a lot of social networks that have also been aimed at niche audiences, not just the mainstream general internet audience. There's actually an early Tech Stuff episode dedicated to these niche social networks, and it included stuff like Ravelry, which is a social network site dedicated to knitting. This, by the way, isn't me dismissing knitting. As far as I'm concerned, knitting is a pretty awesome creative hobby. But it surprised me at the time that there was a social network dedicated to it. Eventually, my horizons expanded, my wife started knitting, and then I realized exactly how social an activity it can be. She does knitting circles, and so, of course, it makes sense to have a social network dedicated to it. But at the time, I just thought, that's just weird. Anyway, Ravelry's not what I really wanted to talk about. The social network that I wanted to mention escaped my attention until I started looking into this episode. I didn't know about it, or if I had heard about it, I didn't remember it. It was called Eons, E-O-N-S. Now, part of the reason of not knowing about it was because I'm not in the generation that was targeted by that social network. It was aimed at baby boomers, people who were at least 40, although most reports at the time said it was aiming at the 50-plus crowd when the site launched back in 2006. And while a certain former Tech Stuff co-host would take great joy in pointing out how old I am, I was not in my 40s back in 2006. Heck, I wasn't even working for How Stuff Works in 2006, so maybe I can be forgiven for being ignorant of this particular social network. Jeff Taylor, who was the founder of the site Monster.com, also was the founder of Eons.com. He created it to target this market of baby boomers, the 50-plus crowd. He felt that they were underserved in the social network space, and I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. Social network sites, when they first launch, or at least when they first catch on, tend to do so within a certain generation band of users, a certain age range in general. There's always going to be exceptions, but you'll see that the majority of your users tend to fall within a certain range. And unless the network is able to adapt over time, that generation band remains pretty much the same. It ages as the the demographic of the, uh, the audience ages, and younger generations tend to opt for alternatives because, among many reasons, there are, quote, too many old people, end quote, on that other site. Eons.com was supposed to be a site dedicated to those, quote, unquote, old people. Now, the site aimed for a clean, easy-to-navigate interface. They wanted to get rid of a lot of the things that would clutter up the profiles on competing social network sites. It had a simplified search engine, and it also boasted, get ready for it, the world's largest obituary database. The goal was to aim at boomers' interests while keeping the features as easy to understand and to use as possible for those who lacked computer savvy. In 2011, a company called Crew Media purchased the site from Jeff Taylor for an undisclosed amount. At the time, the site had about 800,000 registered users. Very small number compared to other social network sites. But you're also talking about people who have probably a lot of uh, 
a lot of revenue, a lot of income they could they could use on various advertising if uh, if you were so inclined. The following year, in 2012, users became concerned because the site went offline without any warning. And after about a week, executives said the problem was that the server company they were working with had some sort of error and that this was all getting fixed behind the scenes. But after a little more time, it turned out that there was a bit more to it than that. And in June 2012, the Eons team posted to the site's Facebook page, and boy, isn't that fun, that a social network site had its own page on another social network. Anyway, they explained that the site's service provider was asking for a financial commitment that the company could not meet. And in return, the the service would end up fixing this problem and getting the eons.com site back up online. But because they said they couldn't meet that financial commitment, they couldn't pay to have the site fixed, and so it would remain down. The executives said they hoped they could get the site back up and running, but that never happened. Users were told that their information would remain locked away and safe. It wasn't going to be sold off or shared with anyone. But as of this date, the site has remained dark. I've got a couple more networks I want to mention, but before I get to those, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Hey, it's been a minute. How about we pop back over to Google? You know, the giant social network killing machine. Now, sadly for Google, the social networks it has slain haven't been competitors. Instead, they've been the company's own properties. Not all of them, however, were developed within Google. Some of them came through acquisitions, like Jaiku, or if you prefer, Haiku, that's with a J. I'm going to call it Jaiku. So Jaiku was a service launched by a couple of Finnish developers whose names I would absolutely butcher if I tried to say them, and I already did that to poor Orkut, so let's just move on. The crux of Jaiku was essentially the same as Twitter. It was uh, founded as an SMS messaging service kind of add-on. It was called a microblogging service. And you were limited to 140 characters for your posts, the same as Twitter's original limit. Now, the reason for that had to do with the limitations of the SMS format, which could carry 160 characters. Some of those characters needed to be set aside for usernames, so the limit for the actual message length was 140 characters. Users could choose to make their Jaiku stream public or private and thus invitation only. So in other words, it was really similar to Twitter, though in those early days, early adopters said that Jaiku's implementation was slightly better, largely due to a dedicated mobile app that allowed users to leave comments on other people's messages, almost like a Facebook post, as opposed to the at-reply method that Twitter relied on. And keep in mind, this was before the smartphone revolution, so this is in the old Symbian operating system days. Google purchased Jaiku in 2007, which made some users nervous. Google had a bad reputation for this. They had already purchased a service called Dodgeball, which was an early check-in service, you know, one of those where you go someplace in real life and you open up your phone and you open up an app, and then you check into that place so it lets other people know where you are. Well, the founders of Dodgeball would go on to later create 
Foursquare, which would kind of take that same uh, same idea and run with it, at least for a while. I'll have to do another episode about Foursquare at some point because that's an interesting story too about how that service changed dramatically over time. Anyway, it turned out that the Jaiku fans had good reason to be nervous because Google did very, very little with Jaiku, or if it did do very much with it, it was never publicly disclosed. They did shut down the service 2009, just two years after purchasing it. That was around the same time that Google also shut down Dodgeball. So if you were to try and visit the URL to jaiku.com, you would get a Google 404 error. Sad story. A similar microblogging service called Pounce stuck around a little bit longer, but ultimately it also bowed to Twitter's dominance in the field. The founders of Pounce were Daniel Burka, Leah Culver, and Kevin Rose. Kevin Rose had co-founded Revision 3 and Dig. Uh, Daniel Burka, Burka was a, a creative director over at Dig. Leah Culver was fresh out of grad school, and they launched Pounce in 2007. The service had more features than Twitter, including the ability to share stuff like photos or videos or MP3s. You could embed them in messages. That was something that would take a while to get implemented into Twitter. Even so, the service just wasn't attracting users at the same rate that Twitter was. It got launched just a little too late, I think, to take advantage of that. And one year after being founded, a company called Six Apart approached the founders and offered to buy Pounce off of them, and they agreed. So Six Apart purchased Pounce, and then they announced that the service was going to get shut down in just a couple of weeks. So you might say, well, why would a company come in and buy something just to shut it off? And typically the answer to that question is the company isn't interested in the product. The company is interested in the people who made the product. Not necessarily the founders, but the actual developers. So it's quite possible that that was the whole reason why Six Apart went after Pounce in the first place. Either way, Pounce was no more just a short time after it had been founded. Now, it's important to remember that for most social network sites, the users are, in fact, the product. It's We got to remember, you know, you always ask, well, if, if a service is free, that really means that you are the thing that's being sold. Social networks tend to make money through advertising, and they attract advertisers because those social networks are privy to tons of private information about users. And advertisers would kill for that sort of granular demographic information. I say that because the next social network I want to mention came from a behemoth in the retail space that was actually launched by the company Walmart. And a lot of people dismissed it immediately as a crass attempt to cash in on the social network trend. And honestly, it's hard to dismiss those criticisms. However, I would argue that Walmart was just more blatant in its motivations than other social networks. A lot of social networks out there were just equally as concerned with leveraging a social network in order to make money. They just, it just wasn't as obvious so while it's easy to, to cast aspersions, I think we need to cast them equally across the field. Anyway, let's talk about The Hub. So Walmart created The Hub in 2006. And part of the reason why I think a lot of people criticize this is because of the target demographic. It wasn't meant for adults. It was actually targeted toward teens. 
Now, according to the company, the purpose of the site was so that teens could, quote, express their individuality, end quote. But this expression wasn't exactly free expression. It actually came with some very strict limitations. For one thing, it would uh, notify a user's parents that the user had joined the service. So, you know, you had to provide email address, I assume, of your your parents. And as part of that, the parents would get a, a notification saying, hey, your kid's trying to join the social networking service, thought you should know just in case. Users were not allowed to send messages to one another privately on the platform, so you couldn't send emails or anything like that to each other. Um, it screened all the content that was coming through the site. And it was largely geared toward the commerce side of social networking. So it was a restrictive platform that was obviously self-serving, and it didn't work. It did not attract users the way Walmart had hoped. And after just three months, Walmart pulled the plug on the site and the hub went flat. Now, my last entry of all these failed social networks is, is just kind of sort of social network. It's, it's social network adjacent, and that would be Yahoo Buzz. This one's also a bit weird for me to talk about because while I cannot remember which article it was, I remember distinctly early in my career, it was shortly after we started adding more staff writers for HowStuffWorks.com. So this would be in the era when Josh and Chuck of Stuff You Should Know had joined and a few others were just fresh on the staff. Yahoo Buzz started to really get a big push behind it, even though it had been around for several years at that point. And one of my articles got featured on Yahoo Buzz early on in this in this push. And as a result, the numbers for that article skyrocketed. It became one of the most visited articles on the HowStuffWorks.com site. And it was mine, which is fantastic. It's a great feeling to see one of your articles just go viral like this. Now, as it turns out, manufacturing that kind of thing is pretty darn hard to do. And people can typically suss out when you're trying to do it and they just dismiss it. So these days, I just focus on trying to do a good job and create good content and not worry about whether or not it goes viral because I figure that's up to other people. That's not up to me. Anyway, let's get back to Buzz. So technically, Buzz was a community news site where users could share articles they had seen online with each other. You could have your own news feed of curated articles that you found interesting, and other people could visit your profile and read the articles that you had curated. It was pretty darn similar to what Dig was already doing and what Reddit would go on to do in the future. Yahoo Buzz originally launched in 2000, and Yahoo would sunset the service in 2011, along with several other social media and blog services all at the same time. The company had come to the conclusion that Buzz and its companions were too challenging to monetize effectively. And so it made more sense to drop those services and refocus on strategies that did generate revenue. So along with Buzz, my blog log, Yahoo Picks, and Yahoo Bookmarks all got the axe. And it all ended. Now, these are all the, uh, the social networks that for one reason or another, went out of business, got shuttered, got shut down. But there are lots of other ones that are technically still around, but have very little activity around them or a very small population, or they don't get very much coverage. They don't, they aren't able to emerge from beneath the shadow of the giants of Facebook and Twitter. 
For example, there's Plurk, which is a Twitter alternative that a lot of people loved when it first came out. It still exists. There's Ello, E-L-L-O, that was pitched as an ad-free social network experience. And these days is largely populated by artists and creative types, so it still exists. It's much more stripped down, simple. Uh, Some people would say it's too simple, but uh, it's one that uh, a lot of artists are using these days rather than Facebook. So there's still a few dozen smaller social network sites that don't have the attention or influence of the big guys. And some people tend to put those on the same lists as uh, as the defunct ones I've mentioned. I don't think that's entirely fair because the ones I'm talking about, literally, they, they don't exist anymore. Or at least they don't exist as their own separate entity. If they exist at all, they exist in the form of features that have been implemented into other social networks. Um, one person suggested I do a diaspora as an example, but that one technically is still going. It's uh, not incredibly popular. There's not a huge number of people using it, but it hasn't gone away yet. So there are more that I could talk about that are are still going. They still have a, a passionate base in some cases at least, but uh, they don't, you know, they don't even have a metric to compare against the big ones. I guess the point of all this is that maybe it is time to go in and break up Facebook a bit. It's essentially a monopoly when it comes to the social network space, especially now that, you know, Google Plus, Google Plus probably had a decent chance if it had been implemented in a better way and if it hadn't had that data breach problem to have really challenged Facebook. But it never quite had the cool factor beyond that exclusivity when it first launched. Uh, No one else has really come close However, we said the same thing about MySpace back in the day, and then Facebook was able to turn all that around. So it may just mean that somebody has to come up with a very compelling uh, approach to social networks, possibly one that appeals to a younger audience, and maybe then they could topple Facebook that way. But honestly, at the rate the company's going right now, they're doing a pretty good job toppling themselves, or at least sticking their corporate foot into their corporate mouth. But that wraps up this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for future topics of Tech Stuff, why not send me a quick message? The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find other ways to contact me there. You'll find the archives of the show there. Go check that out. And don't forget to visit our store. That's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Remember, every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 